0: Good morning. A flood of encouragement at just the right time. Who would not welcome such a gift? Today I share with you such encouragement. Uh, I welcome you to our next teaching series titled, Prepared, from a small letter of the Bible known as Second Peter. This short epistle reads more like a sermon might read, as opposed to a letter. Incidentally, there is there's more of a style with, with a letter to James than with 1 Peter. Uh, so the 4th century Christian historian Eusebius commented that this epistle was actually read in church circles, and understandably so, uh, because this letter is one of, of admonition uh, through which the church became prepared in very turbulent times. Uh, the author here seems to have prepared his readers for, for a time uh, just before his departure and maybe his martyrdom. So there is definitely within the context of 2 Peter uh, this priority of preparing God's people for what lies ahead. Now to make certain we understand how this uh, study opens, we want to move to the end for just a moment, to the end of this opening passage, 1 Peter chapter 1, and I'd like to share with you verses 14 and 15. Uh, The author writes uh, from verse 14, because I know that I will soon Uh, Put it aside as our Lord Jesus Christ has made this clear. Verse 15, And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. Uh, The author expressed in these words his desire that his audience would would be prepared in his absence as he would soon depart. Some scholarship uh, cites this letter just before Peter's martyrdom, meaning his death at the hand of the Roman emperor Nero. Uh, But regardless, uh, the author deeply desired that those to whom he was writing would indeed hold to the foundational truths of their faith. Uh, Now, having gone to the end of this opening passage, I'd like to read back a bit more to verse 12 and 13, just to make certain we know where this study is directed. Verse 12, so I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are familiar and are firmly established in the truth you now have. Verse 13, I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in this tent, my body. As the author now pointed to his limited time on earth uh, and his limited opportunity to encourage the church, he did so by refreshing the memories of the first century Christians. He made certain they were prepared for the new, that light ahead of them uh, as a church. So how did the writer accomplish preparing the people of God for the new that was ahead? How can we prepare for this new year? Because this is an incredible time to study a letter, a book in the Bible about preparation. You see, chapter 1 of Second Peter prepared the early church to continue in the practice of their faith, through encouragement with foundational and fundamental truths of the Christian life. Chapter 2 offered a warning to prepare the church of the first century to face false teachers and their destructive heresies and to face them successfully. Chapter 3 offered support and hope, assurance to the people of God as they prepare for Christ's return. We just celebrated the first advent, the coming of Christ at Christmas. 2nd Peter as a book of preparation pointing toward the second coming of Christ. So in this spirit of preparedness, uh, we begin with chapter one. And we discover in that chapter the necessary theme for preparedness, encouragement. A, a key verse and a key theme that comes to us from 2 Peter chapter one, particularly verse three, is this. God has given us everything we need for life and for godliness, encouragement. As stated earlier, chapter one offers encouragement with the foundational and fundamental truths of our faith, verses one through 15. Having read the end, now we look back to better open our hearts to these truths. And as we open our heart to these fundamental truths of encouragement, I'd like to take a very unique approach. As God has laid this on my heart, I'd like to offer a list of four very simple questions that one most likely needs to ask in preparation for what lies ahead, and in our case, for a new year. Here are these four very basic questions. Who am I? Who is Jesus in this moment? What am I doing? And where am I heading? So let's start with question one. Very simply, who am I? And this is a significant question because this this book opens with an address toward our identity as followers of Jesus. The first century church desperately needed this reminder. So let's begin reading Second Peter chapter 1, verse one and two. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, written to those who through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours. Grace and peace be yours. In abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now, a proper understanding of one's identity with Jesus, as described here, always circumvents any false leadings that would come from many of the heretical teachings swirling about, particularly around the first century church. As always. The church is attacked by heresies on the outside and, and by complacency uh, to the truth on the inside. And so to avoid both, Christians must be reawakened to the truth of who they are in Christ. I see this very clear in the opening of this letter. So, so the letter of Second Peter begins with a reminder of who one truly is as a Christ follower. Uh, The first, uh, the, the first two verses announce what we will hear throughout the letter. It's as if The author is saying, you are about to hear your life as a follower of Jesus. So uh, verse one, uh, the author writes, to those who have received a faith as precious as ours. The question is, who am I? And I'd like to give you a few answers from verse one and two. Answer one, you are valued by God. Simple truth, yes. Necessary, absolutely. You see, challenging moments can cause one to underappreciate his or her status as a believer, especially when one's status in other areas comes under attack. Uh, Perhaps your your identity or status uh, in the culture, your job, in your home, or in your church. And it becomes of the highest necessity to hold to who we are in correlation with the truth of Jesus when we receive challenges in so many areas of our lives. These words from verse 1 to those who have received a faith as precious as ours, reference either an inclusion of the Gentiles as from a Jew, meaning Peter, although there is really no no further evidence of that Jewish-Gentile tension in the letter, or or these words, a faith as precious as ours, is an application of the significant truth that was not only for the apostles, meaning the office that Peter held, but for all who followed Jesus. But regardless of whether this includes all those not holding an office or whether it includes Gentiles as well as Jews. The phrase of faith as precious as ours indicates gracious inclusion for all who trust in Jesus. You are valued. How incredible that in Jesus, each of us are valued equally. I can't emphasize this more than, 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 than what these words do when When you are given the status child of God from John chapter 1 verse 12, through faith in Jesus, we're given the right to become children of God. We see this value. You could not be loved any more than you are right now. And you certainly could not be loved any less. This is your value. This is the highest encouragement of faith as precious as ours. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, this is what we read. I love this verse. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there either male or female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. Well, that's the Bible speaking. And this verse emphasizes that by faith in Christ alone, one is accepted by God, completely accepted. And because of this, followers of Christ have been Unify with Christ and with each other, there is no value of distinction. Our earthly identifiers create no such value. Jews do not carry a higher rank than Gentiles. Free people hold no greater honor than slaves. Men are not superior to women. There is no master race nor inferior ethnicity. And this is not a liberal conservative or a political statement. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So who are you? You are valued by Jesus as much as any saint of old. You are valued. And this is backed up theologically because we we just just read that that the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, The righteousness is here used to mean just and fair dealings, meaning God has no favorites. He's just. He's fair. He extends his grace to all who will trust in Christ. Now, proof of this is as follows. Jesus' death shook the world view of a pagan soldier. He died between two thieves. His body was attended to by different classes of people, rich Joseph of Arimathea and poor Mary Magdalene. Women were the first to have learned of his resurrection. Gentiles were converted. Hardened enemies of the church became missionaries like Paul. Social barriers were broken. And the redeemed family eternally includes every tribe, kindred, nation, and tongue. You find that in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. God's right dealings with all of us who trust him is referenced here. So regardless of what others say against you, what you say against yourself, regardless of what your past says against you, through the righteousness of God, through his justice that he has performed in Christ, you are valued. You're valued. How is this possible? Well, consider the second question to who am I? Answer one is your value, but answer two is this. You're a product of God's grace. And then back to verse one of Second Peter uh, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. The word received implies a gift and not something handed down like tradition. So the idea of received references God's grace. The measure of what we have received is his grace extended through Christ. This is it. This is the bottom line of our identity. This is how we are valued. We have received his grace. We, We cannot allow even our most beloved treasures of tradition to undermine that faith comes strictly through grace. We're a product of God's grace. We're not uh, ultimately a product of our parents' faith or of our church's heritage. All of these may have helped us to get where we are, but, but we are ultimately a product of God's grace. It is only through his grace that we can have forgiveness, that we can be made right with God. Who are we? Well, here's the third answer: We're valued. We're products of God's grace. But looking at verse two, you are the one who knows Jesus. Who 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 am I? You're in a relationship with Christ. Verse two: Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. Where is this relationship? Knowledge. Represents an understanding of the grace of God at work in the life of a believer. Knowledge represents that which is experienced intimately with God in Christ. Knowledge is not simply something that we've we've learned. Armed with such knowledge, according to what we read here and all throughout the Scriptures, the believer is kept from moral lapse and ultimately from apostasy, from falling away. Now, in the letter of Second Peter, knowledge is a favorite word. Uh, we see this in chapter 1, verse 2, verse 3, verse 8, chapter 2, verse 20. In chapter 2, Peter will give a warning against uh, libertinism, meaning uh, licensedness, doing as one desires. Uh, Peter will give a warning against uh, those who would apostatize or fall away from the church. Uh, To support that warning, Peter here encourages one toward a knowledge of God. For a deeper and a more personal knowledge of God is the ultimate safeguard against false teaching. A deeper and more personal knowledge of Jesus is the ultimate safeguard against false teaching. So, so look at this question, who am I? You're valued by God, you've received grace, and you're in a relationship with Jesus if you've placed your faith and trust in him. Now, with these fundamental truths, the church was and is prepared for what lies ahead. This is an amazing demonstration of what Peter wrote. Uh, he encouraged the church with with this foundational reminder of, of who we are, our identity as followers of Christ. Oh, his readers so desperately needed to hear this, and so do we. They, they desperately needed to be prepared for what lies ahead. And entering into this new year, oh, we need to be prepared. And we do this when we first ask the question, who am I? And boy, powerfully, did these verses answer that question. And then we come to a second question, and I love the simplicity as well here. Who is Jesus? Uh, particularly, who is Jesus in my moment? This second question focuses our uh, our, our eyes on the identity of Christ uh, and what's happening now. And let's pick up in verse 3 of 2nd Peter chapter 1. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these He has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them, uh, you might participate in his divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world caused by evil desires. So now we're at this second question. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus according to what we've just read? Well, there's a couple of answers based on these verses we just read. Answer one, he is power. Relationally, you belong to Jesus. He is for you and nothing will come against you that he will not address. I love this. He is for you in every way. Literally, he, he's he's with you. He's your power through the Holy Spirit because he's alive in you. You are empowered by him. Romans 8, 11 reminds us, and if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Yes, you... You have Christ. Who is Jesus in your moment? He is power. There's a second answer. Who is Jesus? He is provision. Oh, I love this. All we need for life and godliness. You see that in verse three? This actually expresses one thought in the original language, although it sounds like two things are referenced here. And this best references and represents our living out the faith Christ has placed within us. Literally one reads, we have all we need Toward the life of godliness. The word in the Greek is eusebia, actually meaning our response to the things of God. The old scholar William Barclay observed, Jesus tells us what life is in Christ and then enables us to live it as we ought to live it. Everything we need for the godly life, for life in godliness. Jesus provides all that we need. He's our provider. So depend upon him. Draw from him by faith. Trust him. Who is Jesus in this moment? He is power. He is provision. But there's a third answer. Who is Jesus? He is the fulfillment of promises. Coming straight from this text, he's given us his very great and precious promises. In Christ these promises come true. We see that referenced in Second Corinthians chapter one verse twenty. That verse translated can actually read when when you read a promise in the Bible, because of your relationship with Jesus, you can emphatically say this means me. This is speaking to me, yes. Jesus is power, he's provision, he is he is promised. Now these three answers to the question who is Jesus? In in our situation right now, provision, power, and promise has one amazing result. I'm reading here, we share in his divine nature and escape the world's corruption. Now, there was common among uh, Hellenistic philosophy and and all the pagan mystery religions that surrounded the church in the first century, there was a a common thought that adherence to those false religions could gradually be absorbed into the deity they worshiped. Uh, So Peter does what he does often. He borrowed language from the culture and transposed it to a discussion about the ultimate truth, the only truth, Christian faith and faith in Christ. So Peter's phraseology, sharing the nature of God, does not simply rest in in, in eschatological views, meaning when we're in heaven, but rather in the present, as we are joining in the nature of God in Christ, as we live in agreement with God's divine nature that is now made evident in Jesus. This is why we can give a resounding answer. Who is Jesus in my life? He's power. He's provider. And he's one that makes God's promises real for me. Following him, I align myself with him and not with the things of the world that are quickly moving to corruption. So how can we better align with Jesus. How can we better say, Jesus, I truly want to to live in agreement with your divine nature. Well, let's go to question three. Question one, who am I? Question Question two, who is Jesus? Now question three. And from this, we're reading verses five through seven of 2 Peter chapter one. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge And to knowledge, add self-control. And to self-control, add perseverance. And to perseverance, godliness. And to godliness, mutual affection. And to mutual affection, love. The third question is, what am I doing? Who am I? Who is Jesus? What am I doing? Great question as we enter into a new year. What am I doing? I bet you've asked yourself that before. I know I have. This question focuses on the simple encouragement to do what is right. Sounds simple? Yes. And there are many lists of right behaviors all through the Bible, particularly in Paul's writings. There are lists of right behavior that's called household codes that we should live by in our lives. There are relationship principles that are represented in a list of right actions that we must adopt. All such lists represents practice in response to the grace that God has has brought into our lives through Jesus. Now, the present text is no different from these other listings in the New Testament. So let's embrace the uniqueness of the particular listing in verses five through seven. Again, we're answering the question, what what am I doing? Now that I know who I am and who Jesus is to me in this moment, now we ask the question, what am I doing? Now, now, there's a list in verse five through seven, uh, virtues, if you will. Uh, And these virtues are not a list over which we can negotiate some parts. Where one might say, "Well, I'm I'm getting some of these right in my life, but I'm not getting all of these right." Well, that's that's not the the emphasis here. The significance of such moral activity becomes evidence with the phrase "make every effort." Do you see that in verse five? Make make every effort. Uh, the NIV, the New International Version, reads, and I love this translation: "Make every effort to add to your faith." Now, one quickly realizes that Peter does not intend this theologically, for that would be heresy to add extra truth outside to the gospel in our lives. Nor does this statement intend to be philosophical, meaning let's add what we would be doing as humans to to the wisdom of the gospel. No, none of that is intended here. Therefore, make every effort to add is this. All that remains is that we add to the gospel, our practice, meaning that we live in response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, his working in our lives. Make every effort to add, make every effort to bring in alongside your stated faith in Jesus Christ, these following virtues. Simply put, we must cooperate with God's work in us. The first two questions represented God's work in us. Question three represents how we must cooperate with the work that God is doing in us. So the question is, what am I doing? So allow me to list these virtues for you as, as I have numbered them even in my own study to answer the question, what are we doing? And I have several of these answers to give you. As I'm reading straight from the text. First, and we are in verse five. First, add goodness. You have claimed faith in Christ. The author writes now. Add goodness. Uh, reproducing Christ's likeness is the emphasis of this term. Goodness. The Greek term arete indicates a basic goodness, expressive of the very nature of who we are and who we serve. Christ's likeness—that is your goodness. Be like Christ. Simple, huh? Challenging nonetheless. So goodness, but goodness must have direction. So add to your goodness. Here's a second virtue. Add to your goodness knowledge. This represents a developing knowledge of Jesus Christ. This indicates understanding and and knowing God's will. You find that in Ephesians 5.17. This understands knowledge and discernment through Jesus' influence in our life. You see that in such verses as Philippians 1.9. And this represents uh, knowing the truth of Jesus intimately like food. And you would see that in such verses as Hebrews 5.14. But what good is knowledge? if it is not practiced in line with our moral behavior. So to godliness add knowledge, but to knowledge, this is what we add, the third virtue, self-control. I love this statement. Self-control represents submission to our new master, Jesus Christ, based on the knowledge we have of him as our savior, bringing all of our faculties under control. This is very scriptural. So we take every thought captive, 2 Corinthians five ten. And we surrender our extremities, the instruments of our bodies. We surrender them to Jesus, Romans 6, 13. So the third virtue is self-control. But what is self-control if not accompanied by the willingness to endure? So we add to self-control endurance. Patient and trustful expectancy defines this perseverance or endurance. So as you persevere and endure, realize that it's just not for endurance sake. We don't endure just to say, hey, I'm hanging in there. This virtue of endurance is incomplete unless we add the fifth virtue, godliness, which is different from the previous goodness for godliness here represents loyalty to God, meaning our affections are ultimately on him. But then to that affection, to that loyalty, we add the sixth virtue, Mutual affection, love for other believers, and love for God. We are called to love God and to love others. The greatest commandment, love the Lord your God. And then love your neighbor as yourself. But then to this, we add our final virtue listed here, the seventh virtue, love. To all of this, add love, as you see at the end of verse 7. So this is the goal of all things. This is our Christ likeness to love like Jesus loved unconditionally. So I hope this list helps you to discern how to answer the question, what am I doing? Who am I? Who is Jesus in this moment? What am I doing in response to him? And then here's the fourth and final question that helps us with this encouragement that is listed here of of who we are and how we're to respond. And it also helps us to be prepared as we go forward in the new year. Uh, The fourth and final question is this, where am i going where am i going this leads us to verse 8 through 11 and indicates how we are to continue in our faith we've already looked at verses 12 through 15 that gave us the end the goal of all of this uh, the writer is saying hey i'm about to depart I, I want you to be prepared i desire that you be, be prepared in the things that you already know so now we come to verses 8 through 11 and we're we're addressing this question so Pertinent for a new year. Where am I going? Let's read verse 8 through 11. For if you possess these qualities, meaning the virtues we just listed, in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Therefore, Brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. And you will receive, where are we going? You will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, with the above activity and application listed in verses five through seven, one becomes. This, this is the message of verses eight through eleven. With with those virtues, in response to who Christ is to us, uh, one becomes effective and productive. But without the following, the the above truth, uh, the following becomes the sad consequences. If we ignore the true truth, the true knowing, and and these virtues, then here's the sad consequence. Yeah one becomes spiritually nearsighted and and blind. What happens when we refuse to seek these values and truths for our lives? We grow spiritually blind. Jesus, who is spiritual light, becomes hidden from us because we're living according to our own sinful inclinations. And as these verses indicate, we're not able to see. We can't see spiritually as we should. Not only do we grow spiritually blind, but we also grow short-sighted. The actual term here means the blinking of our eyes so that we can't see any further than the present the tragedy is that one forgets his or her life as a follower of Jesus having been set apart if we can't effectively answer the question who am I and who is Jesus and what am I doing then we've lost trajectory on where we're going so so as we continue we must affirm our calling and our election, the writer says in Second Peter. These are synonymous terms in indicating God's divine initiative and activity in us for salvation without the aid of humanity. God has changed us. It's his work. He saved us. He redeemed us. We respond with our faith in Christ, but God did the work of salvation. This becomes the emphasis here. Yet the calling from this epistle is to make the work of God in our lives sure. The Greek term for sure Bebios means guaranteed security. The security indicates that one shows by the life they lead that they are truly a result of God's divine work. We make our identity in Christ genuine. And the result uh, is a relentless grasp of this goal, the kingdom of God, which represents peace and fellowship with God. So we respond to what God has done. It's all his work. We respond to it with with these above verses. And then this proves that we're effective and we're not blind. And it proves that we're living for his kingdom, meaning we're living in in the present realm in his peace and fellowship with God under his rule and reign. So where are you headed? Heaven ultimately, but practically each step forward is for the kingdom of God and his rule and reign in our lives. We live for him consistently. This confirms his work in us. In doing this, we'll never stumble. Uh, Wow. Four questions that gives you the encouragement you need to be prepared for the new year. Who am I? Who is Jesus to me? What am I doing? Where am I going? I pray these questions have given you a practical embrace of these foundational truths that are so encouraging to prepare us for what is to come this new year and beyond. This is an exciting study. I'm so grateful to enter in this with you. Prepared. Let's have our hearts ready. Let's be, let's be, let's be prepared. Recently, as many of you perhaps have done during the Christmas, vacation, holidays, my family and I took a trip. And uh, as we prepared, you know, you're packing and you have limited time where you're traveling. You have limited space to pack. So you just have to be really specific. Hey, what is there? How.